everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast, another very hot summer day in Colorado. Today, I'm extremely excited to be joined by somebody else in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado. I'm joined by Nancy Whiteman, who is the founder and CEO of Wana Brands, and now the founder of the Wana Foundation. For those of you who don't know about Wana Brands, which if you're listening, you probably do, they're North America's number one top-selling cannabis product. Nancy has been referred to as the queen of legal cannabis by Inc. Magazine, the Martha Stewart of edibles by Entrepreneur, and she's a total legend in the space. I was extremely excited when she agreed to do this episode. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I am great, and thank you for that amazing introduction. I so appreciate that. So... Nancy and I were chatting a little bit about this before we went on to the show. There's a ton of information about Nancy in the world of cannabis. You can do a Google search and you can go very deep on her story. So we're not going to spend a ton of time doing what we normally do on this show, which is a more of a how I built this, because I have, as an operator myself, I have some tactical operational questions for Nancy. But for people who are listening Nancy, who may not know your story, can you take us back to 2010 when your daughter had a friend over and you were talking to the uh, daughter's friend's father about what he did? Can you bring us to that to that day? Yes, totally. It's like it was yesterday. Although my God, it was 13 years ago. Um, this that's actually completely true. My my daughter had a friend over, and her dad came to pick her up. And he was a commercial real estate developer, which if you were in Boulder in 2010, that was not the best business to be in. So I said, so how's everything going? What are you doing these days? And he said, oh, you wouldn't approve. And of course, that immediately got my attention. I wanted to know what I wouldn't approve of. And he told me that he had started an infused soda pop company. And while I was very familiar with cannabis, actually medical cannabis was new in Colorado back then. And so I wasn't familiar with the terminology, shall we say, of cannabis or marijuana, as we called it back then. And I said, oh, what's it infused with? And he said, marijuana. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. That's a thing. And so long story short, um, we ended up building out a kitchen with him. He had sort of a rudimentary beverages company going and we built out the kitchen so we could start making edibles and it was about as bootstrapped as a as a business could possibly be with uh, testing non-medicated uh, product in our home kitchen and then testing medicated product outside of the uh, home since we had school-aged children at home at that point <laughs> um, and uh, and actually literally bootstrapped it from there with a very small amount of money um, like so many startups, we had not really quite nailed what it was that we were going to be when we grow up, right? So, um, and Carson, I know your business has evolved a lot since you started it in your dorm room mm -hmm. when you yep. were in college. Yep. Yep. So impressive. Yep. Um, but, you know, we started out with a little bit of everything, uh, everything from nuts to brownies to, you know, uh, infused jerky at one point in time. Um, but really the thing that um, we, we started doing about a year and a half into the business was making gummies from scratch. And at that point, there were not really any gummies from scratch on the market. And um, who knew? Because there was no analytics companies back in the day. 
And so we didn't know that gummies were going to sort of be the category. And, but they did, they turned out to be the, the killer category within edibles. And we spent years refining our recipe. And here it is 13 years later, we're in 16 states and getting ready to launch in, in several more and nine provinces in Canada. So it was uh, quite a journey. And, you know, one of the things I read that you wrote, uh, it, was in, it was in an article, I, you said that you would go to dispensaries and you, it sounds so simple, but you stopped selling them things they didn't want and you doubled down on things they did want. And I think so many times when I hear people getting ready to start their business, they're doing, they're hiring MBAs to look at the market, they're doing market research, they're buying all these tools, they're buying all these things. And like, I read that and I was like, oh my God, it's so true. Like, can you just talk a little bit more about just like the getting out there and selling and learning and yes. yeah, I'd love to just hear more about that. Well, totally. Well, here's the funny thing. I actually have an MBA myself and actually ran a corporate market research department. So it was not for lack of knowing about what I was supposed to be doing um, but, you know, it really didn't matter uh, back then, because even if you'd had all the money in the world, which we did not have to do market research, everything was so new that it would have all been theoretical anyway. All that really mattered was what are you going to put out there and what are people going to try and what are they going to buy and what are they going to like? Nothing else actually mattered. And what I figured out pretty early is that it would cost me less to take a flyer on making some products putting them in some packaging, getting them out there and seeing how they did, that would take actually less uh, time and money than it would have taken to do a formal market research study. So, um, you know, it, having starting in a brand new industry makes you very, very pragmatic and uh, very scrappy. And I think that, that uh, there's still some of that spirit, I think, that people would do well to emulate even though now we do have analytics and we can look at all the categories and we do have information that wasn't available. But yeah, sometimes you just have to, you know, rip up the five-year plan and go out and try some stuff and see what happens. And I, I want to I back up to that, but just so people can get a sense of where the business is now, you, not, not even recently, a couple of years ago, you sold the business. I think it was one of the largest private, I think it is the largest private exit in cannabis for $350 million to Canopy. What was what yes. was that process of going through the sale like? Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it was, I'm laughing because there was a, at the Cannabis Marketing Summit, not this past year, but the year before, I was on a panel that Khadija, Khadija Tribble was, was, um, was uh, moderating and I was on with, with Chris Walsh and, um, and I can't remember the other person who was on with me, but Khadija asked the question to Chris, who was then the editor of MJ Biz, was there any transactions this year that were a surprise to you? And he said, well, that, that Warner Brands Foundation was, was kind of a surprise. And I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it really was, um, you know, an amazing outcome. But it was an outcome that we spent about, at least two years prepping for it, to be honest with you. And when I say prepping for it, I don't mean I spent every moment, you know, plotting about my exit and how am I going to do this? But there were some practical things. In fact, they were baked in almost from the beginning that we did. First of all, and you've sort of alluded to it because we didn't have a ton of money, 
um, and I also didn't raise any money, I learned very early that I had to cash flow and I had to be profitable. So we had that very much in our favor, that we were extremely profitable, and that enabled us to do a, a deal based on EBITDA rather than a revenue multiple, which was key. Um, we also uh, had two years of audited books. Um, and we also had an extremely simple cap table. At that point, my partner had exited and I was the sole owner. I was the only person on the cap table. So it was the world's easiest transaction for Canopy to diligence and and, and uh, very, very easy deal to put together from that perspective. Very complicated from other perspectives because they're a publicly held Canadian company and they were buying a plant touching US company. So it had a very unusual deal structure where it actually was, uh, what they purchased actually was an option to buy the company. They didn't actually purchase the company and in fact are still in the process of, of uh, working on that piece of it. Um, but we spent two years obviously getting all the financials in shape for, for the data room. Um, and then we just talked to a lot of different people. And I would really encourage anybody who's thinking about going through this process to go through that process. Because if, if you are at all like I was, I was so not knowledgeable about this process. I don't have a finance background that when people would say, well, what are you looking for? I wasn't really sure how to answer that. Um, I was looking for someone who would, first of all, care about the brand and, and nurture the brand uh, as, as I had done for, for 11 years at that point. Um, and also someone larger with more resources that I felt could get us ultimately where we wanted to go faster and, and more strongly than we could do on our own. And aside from that, I didn't know, you know, there was at that, that was the height of the SPAC craze. And it was the, you know, you need to talk to private equity people and, oh, I would be talking to CPG people outside the industry and I would be, well, obviously it's an MSO. So we talked to everybody and their brother. Um, and it was an incredibly useful um uh, exercise because by going through that, that's how I got myself educated on what I wanted and what I didn't want. And a lot of this comes down, I would say, to chemistry. And uh, is this, first of all, people that I could imagine working with? And then secondly, um, are these people who I think uh, genuinely care about Juana's mission? We're a very mission-driven company. And I didn't want to lose that. Uh, and I didn't want to sell the company to somebody who really was so bottom line focused that that's the lens through which they were going to be doing all of their thinking and all of their decision making. So it was a long drawn out process as these things can be. Um, and and I, I laughing, I've shared this with, with cannabis, with, uh, with Canopy, excuse me, but um, we actually had spoken with them many years before when we were looking for partners in Canada, did not have a wonderful experience. They were probably the last company I thought we would end up with, but they had had a change of leadership and, um, you know, the chemistry was very good. And so that's my, my second uh, caveat to people. The first is to start early and get yourself ready. 
But I'd also say be be open-minded, even if you think you know something about the organization that you're talking to. Things change all the time in cannabis and people change all the time. So that's what I would say. One of the pieces of your story that's so incredible is that you own 100% of the company and you were cash flowing and you were profitable early. I just, last week I had Bo Whitney from Whitney Economics on to our podcast and he was talking about how only 25% of all cannabis businesses are profitable right now. And so mm-hmm. you bootstrapped and got yourself profitable and got yourself cash flowing. It sounds like still to this day, 75% of the industry can't do that. Do you have any trades or secrets as to how you did it and and why others seemingly cannot? Well, you know, um, there's some advantages to not starting with a lot of money, I would say. Um, So um, I, I used to joke sometimes at the company that I spend money like it's my own money because it is my own money. <laughs> so that meant that I never did some of the flashier, more high profile stuff that other people did. You know, I would look at, you know, so-and-so would do this incredible advertising campaign or this million dollar collab with some big uh, brand. And I think, wow, that's amazing. That's cool. But there's a price to be paid for all of that stuff. And that price is that it takes a lot of money. And unless you happen to be personally wealthy, which I was not, and, um, you know, willing to, to put your money in that way, um, you really can't do those things. You have to, you have to very much live within your means and live with, within your budget. And um, so, you know, this is, I swear this is going to sound almost naive, but it frankly didn't occur to me that I had any other option but to do it the way I did it, which is was to be rather frugal, to grow the company very slowly and deliberately. Um, one of the things that we did do, which, which made a huge difference, is we chose a good category that was very much a growing category, of course, the gummy category. We always worked really hard to stay ahead of the curve in terms of innovation. Um, you know, I could, you know, take you through the years of things that we sort of spotted and, and jumped on rather early. But one of the things that we did is we started our out-of-state expansion well ahead of most other people. So we did our first out-of-state deal probably when the company was about three and a half years old and Oregon legalized at that point in time. Um, And then we moved to Nevada. And then before you knew it, we had sort of gotten this expertise in how to do that. And we chose an asset light model. Um, So we didn't get licenses. We didn't build out facilities. We found people to partner with. I, and every model has its challenges. And I always say they're all hard. It's really just a question of what kind of hard you're willing to, to go through. But our kind of hard didn't require a ton of money. And because we were good at getting to markets quickly, we were able to get really a lot of that early, um, you know, when prices were still high and competition was still low and we could build market share really effectively. So it all started to really snowball in terms of that the out-of-state part of the business really became the cash flow generator. Colorado always did extremely well also, but it's one state. 
right, with a limited number of, of people, et cetera, and more and more competition moving in. So it was really our ability to get to new markets quickly and to execute on those markets quickly that made the difference for us. You know, I, I, I absolutely love the quote that you said of, I spend money like it's my own because it is. And for Vangst, we were bootstrapped when I was in my dorm for 2015, then 2016, 2017, and in 2018, we went down, for better or worse, we went down the, we went down the venture path. And I've spent a lot of time reflecting on how we, I think we could have done a better job uh, with the capital that we raised, but you feel this immense, this so much pressure, like, when you go from having, I mean, we were like going payroll to payroll. Every every time we hired someone, I would map out, okay, this is how much we need to make next month so that we can pay them and then hire another person to do this other thing. And then suddenly, you know, for us, our seed round was $2.5 million. You suddenly have $2.5 million sitting in your bank account and then our Series A, $10 million, and the Series B, $19 million. It's like really hard to stay disciplined when you suddenly get that much money and having had gone through it, sometimes I really do wonder to myself, and you know, my investors would probably be pissed if they're listening to this, love you all, <laughs> and we're on this journey together now. Uh, but like, sometimes I wonder like what would have happened if I just would have kept bootstrapping. It would have been hard, and there have been a lot of sleepless nights, but I mean, do you think, when you look at all the entrepreneurs out there, do you think that people should 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 bootstrap, or do you think that they should raise capital. I mean, bootstrapping seemed to really, really work well for you. You know what? Um, I, I, I shared this recently on, on another um, podcast that I did, but what I would say is whether to boot cap, boot, bootstrap or raise capital is a function of the structure of your business and what your business needs to succeed. But what I would say, and this was told to me by, by, um, um, Kim uh, Rayal from, from Azuka, who's one of our partners, they do our, our quick onset technology. She said, never raise money that you don't need. And I remember because we were talking about it at the time, I was like, well, maybe I should take some money off the table. You know, I could get, now I was at a point where I would have attracted investors. But the truth was, I didn't need it. I didn't need it at all. It was just kind of a insurance policy. Like, what if it all goes to hell? At least I'll get this money out. And so... Um, I, I didn't end up doing it. And of course it ended up being the best thing in the world that I didn't end up doing it. So I think that it really depends on your business model. There are some businesses that are just, they just require a lot of capital. You know, if you are an MSO and you're setting up cultivation and retail and manufacturing in six or seven or eight or nine or 10 different markets, you're going to need a lot of capital to do that. And you are not going to be able to bootstrap that. If you're a brand, I would argue that um, some brands take money maybe a little bit too early and then get into that, you know, we've got a lot of money now. Now, we are, now we're going to act like a big company, right? And they're going to they're gonna do some stuff with their money that maybe if it were their own money, they wouldn't choose to do. So it depends on, on the business. Um, what I would say in all honesty to people, so I don't give people sort of the wrong impression, is that you have to understand that when we started, it was a very different environment, right? It was not nearly as difficult to get on the shelf. And, um, you know, people were not expecting um, constant promotions and constant discounting and, 
uh, buying shelf space and many of the dynamics that we now face in the markets that we operate in um, that, that do require money. So part of it was, was uh, luck and timing. Um, and part of it was discipline and, and not taking money out that I didn't really need at that point in time. And I think that that's a really good thing for people to hear because so many times investors are like, people said to me, raise money when you don't need it. Um, and, you know, that's kind of like a, listen, there's, for in our business, when COVID happened, I mean, our gigs business went down almost overnight because our customers had to operate at less than 50% capacity. So we went from, you know, having hundreds, maybe thousands of gig workers with our customers to nothing. Had we not raised money, that would have been a little bit of a jam to get us out of. So like everything I do feel like happens for a reason, but I, I really, really feel like from my perspective, um, if you can do it without raising, it just makes you a more disciplined operator. And I think Nancy proves that more than anyone else. I think about Sarah Blakely. I actually always think about how like you're the Sarah Blakely of our industry because Sarah Blakely, no experience in the industry she went into. She was selling fax machines door to door. She had $5,000. She scaled, became the first woman billionaire. I, I always kind of like compare the two of you in my mind. And I think if people can do it, it's just so inspiring and, and so incredible. Um, you know, so you sell the business. What, what happens na- next? Like you've reached everyone's dream. You reach, many people are so hoping to have an outcome like you. What goes on now? <laughs> well, in the short run, nothing much changes because um, I'm still the CEO of Lana. I'm still running the company. We still have so, so much growth and so many exciting things. In some ways, I've never been so excited, right? Um, because we're looking at all kinds of interesting new products and new areas and new markets and international markets and just, you know, still a huge amount of growth to come. So my day-to-day life is is happy and full just with Juana. Um, but one of the most, probably the most amazing thing that happened from this transaction was that I was able to start the Juana Brands Foundation, which is a, a private foundation um, that I funded with $50 million from the transaction. And um, that is really such an interesting and joyful experience for me. I never had any experience with nonprofits. I've worked in in the private sector my entire career, um, but there's many things that I'm passionate about just as a person in this world and uh, things that, that I wanna be part of supporting. And it's been this enormous uh, growth opportunity for me and learning curve for me. I'm a very steep learning curve kind of a person. I always like to be learning new things uh, and having a lot of intellectual stimulation. And I have way more to go in terms of understanding and learning about what it means to be a conscious philanthropist and what it means to make choices that make real impact in the world. So certainly that. Um, I really look forward to, um, you know, helping Canopy with the next round of transition, which is the formation of Canopy USA, which will roll up Juana and Acreage and Jetty, which is a California vape brand. That's a great, great brand. Um, I'm, I'm on the board of that organization. 
uh, I'm having a lot of uh, fun intellectual challenges trying to um, figure out how that all works together. Um, and then I hope to travel the world and just, you know, really enjoy enjoy life for a while. I'm sure I'll do boards. I hope that uh, I'll have some interesting, wonderful people to mentor. But yeah, that's kind of my next go round is a lot of philanthropy and um, trying to figure out how to help Wana continue to be successful in kind of a new situation. You talked about how this, all this somewhat started because your daughter had a friend over. How, how has it been um, with your kids growing up in the business and being a full-time mom and being a full-time CEO? I, something that I, I don't have kids yet, but it's something that I'm thinking about in the future. So I'm always curious to ask people. Well, one of my daughters is sitting in the background here, so I guess we could ask her, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, bring her on. <laughs> um, you know, I think my kids, they their understanding of what the business was all about grew as the business grew. When we started in Colorado, they were both school-age. They were... Um, one, one was in middle school uh, and the other was, was in high school. And... Um, you know, the, the explanation, which was true, which is this is a medical marijuana company. Um, we are here to create products that help people with their medical conditions. And they, 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 kind of, they mostly bought that. And then, of course, as adult use came along and the company began to shift, you know, we were always very honest about what we were doing uh, with the kids. And um, I think it's... You know, it's of course always challenging to be a, a working parent and and uh, um, to do a good job on both of those things. But they grew up with me working even before I started Wana, so it's not like they ever had a stay-at-home mom and then that shifted at some point. The nature of the business is a challenging one, I think, to navigate with kids and to. Um, be sending them the right messages about why are we doing this and um, you know, what are some of the pros and cons of, of you as a person using um, uh, cannabis. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it all kind of worked out, you know, the, um, the thing that makes me very happy just going back to the foundation is that um my kids are, are interested in becoming involved with that. And one, one daughter in particular is very interested. We, we just got off a call where we were going through some different um, grant applications. And so that makes me very happy to think that that kind of a legacy will also be carried on. And as you move into the foundation and you're, you're, we're working on this, is there any, sectors that you're mostly excited about or is it is it broad I'm, I'm thinking if people are listening and they might want to you know get in touch with the foundation is there any categories that you're mostly passionate about there is we actually have a number of categories and and um it was interesting because it's at, when we first started i thought well this is too much um it many of them are are extensions of what we were already doing through our corporate social responsibility through the company. But now, of course, we can do it at a much larger scale. So some of it has to do with um, the industry itself. So uh, I'm extremely interested in, in, because I'm so interested in innovation for the company, 
I'm also interested in fueling what really provides for innovation, which is research. So for example, we made a gift of $2 million to the John Hop- Johns Hopkins Cannabis Lab and a million dollars to their psychedelics lab. Um, because uh, those things fund um, cannabis research in general. On the psychedelic side, it also funds another area that I'm really passionate about, which is mental health. Um, because so much of the research on psychedelics is being done um, as real breakthrough uh, possibilities for mental health. And the results uh, are really astounding. Um, from, um, I was recently at the MAPS conference. I think you were there too, were you not? Some people on, on our team were there, but I heard about it. Yeah, I saw some folks from, from thanks there. You know, so that's a, an area of real interest and passion for me. Um, social justice is a huge issue in the industry and for me personally. And so we fund a whole bunch of organizations, both inside of cannabis and outside of cannabis, that are uh, really in support of social justice and other marginalized communities. Um, we made a very large uh, contribution to mm-hmm. Out Boulder, which is the LGBTQ organization in Boulder, and they touch on a whole bunch of our issues. So obviously a marginalized community, social justice, mental health through the programs that they offer, and also community connection. Um, one of the other areas that we really focus on is sustainability and climate change. And that one's been a really fascinating one for me because although I'm, and this summer is a great indication, right, of what's happening to our earth. Um, while it was an area that I was really interested in, I really knew nothing about it. So very steep learning curve, um, trying to understand the things that really move the needle on climate change is its own life's work, right? And I'm at the very kind of beginning of, of that as well. Uh, we also fund a lot of organizations that work with food security. Uh, we started this several years ago for 420. We renamed it at WANA Forward 20, uh, that we want to play it forward. And so rather than just doing a bunch of t-shirts and other swag, what we did is we funded um, a nonprofit in every one of our markets who works in different kinds of ways with food security. So we did, um, obviously, food banks and that sort of thing, but we also did urban gardens. We did people who were standing up groceries in food deserts, um, uh, people who worked on food waste, which, of course, also has a lot of sustainability issues because it takes such a toll on the environment to grow food and to create food, and then 40% of the food in this country goes to waste. And it goes into landfills and releases methane into the environment. So one of the things that I've really learned is that all the intersectionality between all these issues. They started out feeling very separate. And what I've learned is that they're not separate, um, that they're all connected to each other. And it's cool that you can like weave them all together within the WANA Foundation. It's so cool. And it's really one of the things in our scoring forms, it's one of the things that we look for, is we look for innovations in the organizations that we fund. um, And we look for how are they addressing intersectionality? You know, what are they doing to address more than one issue? Um, And and that part of it is is usually pretty clear because, uh, you know, if you take... um, uh, communities of color, for example, their outcomes are worse in terms of health, in terms of mental health, 
in terms of food security, domestic violence, almost every issue that you can talk about, uh, they're disadvantaged, right? So um, everything is, is interconnected. And that's been one of the real uh, amazing, interesting areas for me as I've just really started on this journey. Well, we're coming up on the time. And of course, I've got a bunch of questions I, I didn't get to. So we'll have to, hopefully, we can have you come back on. But but what I wanted to wrap was, of course, this, this was an incredible success story. You exited your business for an incredible outcome. There's a lot of folks out there right now in cannabis who are really, really struggle city. Um, we see it all the time. We're a hiring company. And so we're seeing all the layoffs front and center. Last year was the first year that we saw a d- decrease in, in jobs. The industry actually lost more employees than it gained. And it's just no secret that the industry is struggling. Um, you know, what advice do you have for those operators out there right now that are looking to get to the other side of it is part one of my question. And in part two is, you know, you know, if you had a crystal ball, where do you see us going in, in the short term? As an industry? Yeah. Yeah. Don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> I wish we all did. I wish we all did. Let me start with the first part of your question. So, you know, I used to joke that, that the cannabis industry was made up of a bunch of magpies and that we all chased after every new shiny object. And I do think, uh, certainly initially, it just seemed like there were so many different avenues and so many ways to go. Um, I think focus is incredibly important. I think you need to be very clear about what you're trying to accomplish, and that's what you need to focus on. This is not the time, if you don't have a good, strong financial base and a good, strong customer base, this is not the time to overextend yourself. Um, either financially, but also just bandwidth-wise. I think this this kind of environment is draining, right? And I think you really need to um, be very clear on what it is that you're trying to execute on. Um, you know, in terms of how to get through this part, that's a tricky one because, uh, and, and to your point earlier, which I do appreciate with people say, raise money when you don't need it. There is some truth to that because I think the natural inclination when um, an industry is stressed and businesses started to get stressed is people begin to pull back on things that feel discretionary. Uh, Branding and marketing, uh, certainly always among those. And while I think it's hiring and hiring, exactly. While it is um, judicious to cut back on the aspects of that, that uh, might not be mission critical to the focus we were just talking about. If you look at any Harvard Business School case study, they will all tell you that the companies that invest in branding and marketing and strategic hires um, in, in, in times of, of recession or pullback are usually the companies that end up thriving. But of course, you have to have some cash flow to do that. So, you know, be really clear on your strategy and spend the money on the things that directly support your strategy is the other thing that I would say in terms of how to get through this. And more, I would, on a more personal level, I'd say, make sure you've got a really strong support system. It's really hard as an entrepreneur to go through this without that. And um, 
you know, I know I have depended on my cannabis friends so much over the years to be able to call them up and commiserate and cry and rage and complain and, and vent and all of those things that we really need to do. And, and also to encourage each other to remind people that this is a point in time. This isn't going to last forever. Things are going to stabilize. Um, so you have to get through it emotionally. You have to take care of yourself and you have to really focus and invest strategically. And, and the, just that is a, the best answer ever. I'm going to re-listen to that. I'm going to play it for our whole company that doesn't listen. If they don't listen to the whole episode, we're playing that, that clip. And then, you know, just, just my last question and my last part of it is, you know, where do you see us going from here as an industry with, you know, I, I was just hearing that, you know, safe didn't even make it out of committee onto that house floor. And I asked this to everybody and I get a different answer from everybody, but I'm just super curious your take on, you know, where, where do we go as an industry from here? Do we, I'm going to give you a slightly different answer. I think, well, first of all, you know, the safe stuff literally changes day to day, day to day. And I heard something else today and we hear that, you know, Biden is committed to rescheduling. Is it two? Is it three? We don't know. Right. So there's, there's all of who knows on the federal side. What I would say is very interesting right now is this sort of interplay right now between the regulated cannabis industry and the hemp derived THC industry and how that is going to um, both create issues, but also create opportunities and that people should be thinking very strategically about how they're going to operate in those two spaces and where they have both have a place and where we should be trying like heck to make sure that public safety is put first um, and get uh, some of that stuff uh, out of the marketplace. It looks very much to me like that's going to be left up to the states to figure out that we're probably not going to see federal action, even with the farm bill relook after five years this year. Um, but I do think that we are moving towards a time when we're going to start thinking of ourselves as a cannabinoid industry and not a cannabis industry specifically, and that we're going to need to be looking rather holistically at, at the whole, um, at the whole landscape uh, and how, how we operate as businesses. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how this begins to play itself out. You know, I do think that for all the trying times that we've gone through, it, it is very cool to just, we're going to look back in a decade and be able to tell the story. I mean, we already have a decade of a story to tell. And in another decade, there's another piece of the story to tell. And it is, when you zoom out, it is just so cool to be part of building this. And, you know, Nancy, the queen of legal cannabis, the Martha Stewart of edibles, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. You're just an an incredible inspiration to me personally as another female founder in the space. And your story is just one of the best stories I've ever heard in, in the space and so happy for you and can't wait to see what you continue to do. So thank you for being here with me today. Thank you. And I have to tell you that I think you're pretty darn amazing too. When I was uh, in college, it never frankly would have occurred to me to do the things that you did. So congratulations to you as well. Well, th thanks for saying that. And I'm sure we'll see each other at the next uh Patrick's next CEO meetup. <laughs> sure. yep. Have a good day. Don't, don't overheat today in, in Boulder. Okay. All right. Thank you.
for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.